and welcome to the 12th episode of Tomorrow Never Knows, the podcast for women who know things and people who like listening to them. I'm Charlotte Lydia Riley. And I'm Emma London. And today we're going to be talking about activism. Yes, this is the first, sort of the first of a two-part um, podcast on activism and activist women and difficult women as well. So It's funny how that's like a Venn diagram that's basically one big circle. Yes, absolutely. And also, you know, nicely... Uh, could could easily actually be the strapline for this podcast more generally. I think. <laughs> yeah. um, so Emma, why are you interested in activism? Well, a lot of the work that I do, the research that I do, which uh, regular listeners will know quite well by now, is um, women in politics and women who make spaces for themselves in political parties. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I mean, it seems very obvious, um, that is the route most women have to take is through some very active activism, some mm-hmm. very loud... Um, carefully thought out strategies to amplify their own voices and voices of other women um, around them so I've spent a lot of time in in, inside the Swedish Social Democratic Party the Mm -hmm. ANC of South Africa um, and other organizations like that the British Labour Party recently Mm -hmm. um, trying to work out how activism works when it's within a male-dominated party that Mm -hmm. is quite keen on presenting women in very specific roles that women aren't always very keen on having. Mm -hmm. And how about you? So I'm interested, I think I'm interested in activism um, quite broadly from an academic perspective because I'm I'm interested in and kind of constantly trying to think about the ways in which academic work fit into activist Mm. kind of politics as well. So how far is the work that we do inherently activist? How far... You know, if you're writing about women's history, how does that kind of fit into activist in women's rights, for example? Um, and I'm in my work, I'm interested in activism because I'm interested in the blurring of boundaries between political life and personal action. Yeah. So I think a lot of the time when I talk about activism, I mean kind of extra political party work um, or stuff that's going on at the margins. Mm. Um so, for example, not necessarily Labour Party MPs, but maybe the grassroots campaigners for, for Labour or even kind of single issue groups who happen to work with Labour on particular topics. Mm. Um, so in my case, that's often groups um, like charitable organisations who care about international development or world poverty, who, yeah. who are kind of charities, but also activists. Um, and I'm also kind of with charity. I'm always interested in how people decide to present themselves, because I think um, sometimes people talk about like voluntary work and volunteerism and I'm always interested in how that might bleed into activism mm. because you, you, we tend to think about like voluntarism and voluntary work as being you know kind of the stereotype of the middle-aged woman helping out in the charity shop but actually you know it, is that itself activist is that doing mm. something kind of practical political so I'm interested in in those kind of intersections I think yeah it's a very fascinating topic what I've found is that in a lot of um, but so we know Sweden as this gender equal utopia, right? Mm-hmm. Where everything is just yeah. paved with, I don't know, pink hats or something. <laughs> um, and what I've found is that it, it's such a, it's a joint thing that has happened through both the extra parliamentary feminist movement mm-hmm. and the actual women's activists within the Swedish parliament. So Sweden had in the late 60s and early 70s, like a host of very women-friendly um, laws made mm-hmm. 
which were part due to the pressure put on politicians by the second wave feminist movement, mm-hmm. which in Sweden is mostly a group called Group Otta, who was all very, it's called, it's, it means Group 8. Um, mm-hmm. They were very uh, well-educated. They met at university in a sort of discussion group. Mm-hmm. Um, very vocal, very good at making front pages. Um and they kind of push the idea about free abortions, mm-hmm. for example, up on the agenda and the fact that daycare places were needed because mothers need to go to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wouldn't have happened had it not been for the social democratic and maybe communist women in, yeah. in the parliament and also centre party women, liberal women mm-hmm. and others um, who actually made the laws, who very often feel quite... They're, they can be a bit dismissive of the feminist movement because they feel like it's all placards and uh, demonstrations, whereas they've actually made the laws. And I can, mm. I can see that there's a bit of a tension between the two, but I really feel like they, they work so well in cooperation mm-hmm. with each other. And maybe partly because there is a competition between them. Yeah. That they're not, they're not really natural allies mm-hmm. a lot of the time. I think they're much better at natural allies now when the parties are meant to be feminists in Sweden mm. um, but yeah it's interesting that kind of because when I, when I say activist when I picture an activist I imagine a, a demonstration and a placard yeah. I think or, or even kind of more direct action you know we talked a couple of weeks ago about suffragettes yeah. you know they're activists they're doing like practical um, you know often quite violent or disruptive actions you know breaking into the house of commons or smashing windows with toffee hammers or whatever but obviously also, you know, the, the non-violent suffragists, the women who were working on um, kind of changing the law and getting permissions, um, permission, getting petitions, are still activists. They're still kind of doing political work. Yeah. I think it's funny as well how I, again, and this is sort of my bias, and perhaps because I spent last week, part of last week at a Thatcherism conference, <laughs> um, <laughs> which has made me think a bit more about the perspectives I assume... Um, as a kind of liberal lefty, I tend to kind of assume often that academic work is coming from the same space as my political orientation. Yeah. But I think it's funny how we tend to assume we've both talked about activism as being kind of left wing and progressive. Yeah. yeah. And actually, there's just as much female activism. There's a history of female activism which is not left wing and progressive at all, which is very conservative, small c conservative. Yeah. And reactionary. And yeah. Is that? I mean, is that a thing in Sweden as well? Is there kind yeah. of a, act, a reactionary activist presence there? Definitely. And I think you don't really have to go very far into Swedish history for even the Social Democratic Party to have a very reactionary mm-hmm. kind of activism. I mean, before we started recording today, we were talking about the fact that uh, abortion in Sweden was legalised in the 30s mm-hmm. um, for medical, um, mental and eugenic reasons. I mean, eugenics was a big thing mm-hmm. in Swedish social democratic policy in mm. the 30s, 40s and 50s. Um and I think it doesn't take long for the backlash towards the feminist advances mm. to be organised in itself. Yes. And there's quite a lot of organised anti-feminism. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of it isn't actually tortures carried by women. Some of it is. Mm. But I think it's less visible in Sweden that the sort of um, alt-right, which is a word I absolutely hate, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> the old fascists, uh, is what I prefer to call them, they have fewer female front people than they do in, say, the US. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's that Um, space for women. I mean, women activists on the right are often... 
a legitimizing presence right because because the you know because right-wing activism often is can often be deeply militaristic and fascistic and so there's a way of women kind of pulling in and of course you know the role of women in fascism more generally yeah um, I mean like the British Union of Fascists is you know led in Britain by by men by Oswald mostly but the role of women like you know, Unity and Diana Mitford for example mm. as kind of presenting a more acceptable face of fascism yeah the sort of washing away a bit of the the boots and yeah the the jackboots and the uniforms i mean in britain the female activist i was thinking about who i've taught about uh, students about is mary whitehouse oh yeah um which again which is which is an interesting case study of of activism because she is you know resolutely conservative she's very right wing she's a teacher and um, for those of you who haven't heard of mary whitehouse she's a campaigner on kind of social and moral purity uh, she sets up the National Television, the National Viewers and Listeners Association, the MVLA, in the nineteen sixties, and she campaigns against what she sees as the, the kind of, terrible dregs of the permissive society and these awful things that are happening. And it, it's against moral the, degradation, exactly against the context in Britain of not only things like the legalization of homosexuality and abortion and the rise of the women's movement, but also like the loss of the British Empire, mm. the Beatles, you know, all of these things that seem to be undermining Britain internationally. Um, she, I love the idea that the Beatles would be undermining British society internationally. It's so, it's so, yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> but it's this sort of sense of her of this loss. It's it. Yeah. She's really governed by loss by this this sense that this is a moment that Britain could could choose different paths and that they're kind of losing their moral high ground. Isn't that always a thing about small C conservatives and yeah, um, and so. women's activism though that a lot of it is about loss and so. restoration of a greater, grander past, whereas left-wing or more feminist activism is trying to push mm. ahead into the future yeah and i think a lot of the time right-wing women as well right-wing women activists are kind of fighting to preserve what they see as like natural women's roles which often has you know there are often really interesting interplays then between this kind of conservatism and them having a role in the movement itself and so they often kind of end up making arguments that actually you know, having protecting, for example, traditional gender relations is actually a way of giving women freedom. Or, you know, they they talk about how permissive the permissive society is actually very exploitative to women because, yeah. you know, women um, ultimately are the ones who are going to pay the price for all of this free love. For example, you know, women are the ones who might get pregnant or have to have abortions yeah. or be left without a husband. And and you can kind of see how they're able to manipulate that, yeah. that idea and and say that actually, you know, traditional gender roles give women a certain amount of freedom and respect or so mary whitehouse spends a lot of her time sending telegrams to howard wilson complaining about things like um alf garnet it's complaining about television programs and, and saying and she but she mobilizes this army of housewives yeah and men as well but but really an army of housewives at home who then write letters to write telegrams to ring up the bbc and complain about pre-watershed uh, swear words for example and blasphemy yeah. as well is a big thing and it is you know it's, it's, it's female activism it's just absolutely different to what we would normally think of as being activism yeah um, it's not it's not women's activism in a way that you and I would like, naturally no. diagnose it <laughs> but it's absolutely feminine and it yeah. comes from a place that's actually using gender roles gender relationships really critically yeah. you know it's, yeah. it's really important i think that's really fascinating as well because in in southern africa there's often an, an, a, a very big emphasis on on mothers of the nation mm. i mean there's several competing mothers of the nation in south africa one of whom just died a week ago mm-hmm. um 
And it's that in itself shows that motherhood can be a lot more militant than mm. we Western feminists would naturally recognise. I read something very interesting yesterday. It was a thread on Twitter that I should have made more effort to memorise because I'll, I'll try to, to dig it out mm-hmm. um, for the footnotes. But it was someone who was saying um, that Toni Morrison at one point had said mm, yeah. that she... Um, found motherhood very liberating Mm -hmm. and that's in comparison to the sort of western feminist Mm -hmm. idea of womanhood Mm -hmm. um, in which motherhood is very limiting yes it's quite an interesting interesting sort of sign and symbol for a lot of the kind of blinkedness that we might have i found motherhood quite liberating myself Mm -hmm. it's quite nice to <laughs> my my main goal in life at the moment is mm-hmm. to just survive until mm-hmm. my kid is old enough <laughs> <laughs> which makes a difference from like two years ago when it was yeah. to get articles published <laughs> yeah, yeah it gives you different choices doesn't it, it puts you yeah. in a different space i think um natalie tomlinson i think has done some good work on this oh, she's a historian of the women's liberation movement in the 1970s in britain but she works a lot on race um and there's been some really good work more generally, on how the women's liberation movement was often really focused in the 70s on getting women freedom from their children and families. Yeah, It's about, you know, and we, the, the kind of goals of the women's liberation movement are things like 24-hour childcare, um, you know, education for all, including for, you know, women who've got kids and, and things like equal pay and um, abortions. Yeah. And, like, freeing women from what they saw as, like, the patriarchal constraints of husband and child and the domestic space. But, you know people have pointed out that actually um Valerie Amos actually does this in in a, a piece as well about called challenging imperial feminism in the 1970s or 1980s when she points out that this only kind of works in a in a sort of this freedom is only a freedom from a sort of assumed white middle class nuclear family and that actually different sort of communities of women in Britain were actually fighting for very different things that um, women in Britain in like the black British community were much more likely to be single mothers and so they didn't need to have kind of lots of conversations about the different types of childcare or the different kinds of like domestic labour you were doing at home with your husband or like how you know it was much more household share which is a lot of a a lot of emphasis on yeah they were much more concerned with uh, thinking about like practical childcare solutions, and that women in like the British Asian community were much more likely to be um, kind of living in close proximity to family members and have a, have a much more kind of uh, maybe a, a a wider kind of conception of what family meant. And it was a very important supportive space for them. Yeah. Um, and that actually they didn't really want to be freed from family. They just wanted to have more. Um, well, a lot of the time they wanted to escape the kind of insidious racism in Britain that they felt was limiting. And so the women's activism in the 70s and 80s was often dominated by a very specific conception of white motherhood, which was felt to be very limiting and very controlling, but didn't necessarily speak to everybody's concerns or needs. Yeah. Have you done work on the Greenham Common? I've, protests. I haven't done much work on them. I've, I've done a little bit of... Um, I'm interested in Greenham Common because of what it says about British people's attitudes to international issues. Yeah. Um, I think we need to tell people what the Greenham yeah. Com- Common is. So Greenham Common's a really interesting example of female activism. So um, Greenham Common's in Berkshire in England and it was a site of um, 
they the British government sighted 96 cruise nuclear missiles there. It's an American base, an American military base. And there's this huge kind of controversy around this in Britain because obviously not only around the issues of nuclear weapons generally, but also specifically about the issue of making Britain a target. Yeah. Um, you know, America's keeping these missiles here so that they can hit the USSR more easily and this kind of drags Britain into a nuclear into a nuclear conflict. And so in 1981, there's a Welsh group called Women for Life on Earth who have marched from Cardiff to Berkshire um, with this sort of... They want to try and challenge the decision to put these missiles here. And they don't... Kind of, you know, their request for a debate is obviously completely ignored. There is no kind of, you know... There's no acknowledgement of the fact that these women have any right to challenge this decision. And so they set up a peace camp outside the fence. And there is a 19-year peace yeah. protest outside Greenham, which is very female-dominated. But in six months, it becomes known that it's the women's peace camp. Yeah. Um, some women are present there for really long periods of time. Other women come for a day or a week. Um, Quite a lot of famous women come in and out to yeah. show support. Absolutely. And famous men, too. There's a, I've, there was a really good exhibition um, at the Imperial War Museum oh, yes. on peace protests, and they had some yeah. really good news footage, and they saw Fenner Brockway, the very campaigning Labour Party MP, who at this point was very elderly and in a wheelchair, being kind of wheeled very enthusiastically over very rough ground to go <laughs> and meet the... I mean, he's very enthusiastic about it, to go and meet the Greenham Common yeah. women and, and give talks and things. That was such an excellent exhibition for many reasons, but yeah. part of what they had done was kind of recreate a bit of the fence, because mm-hmm. women, the women present at Greenham would kind of decorate the fences yes. around the camp. So there were rosettes and ribbons and flowers and a very kind of arts and crafty... Yes, absolutely. It was very using these kind of ideas of femininity, and uh, there's been some brilliant academic work. We'll put some footnotes about. There's lots of researchers working on Greenham at the moment, or a few anyway, more than there have been in the past. And they'd do things like make huge kind of carnival dragons that they would use to try and get past the security guard. And you know, it wasn't just a sort of it wasn't just sitting around and singing and putting ribbons on. They also regularly they used to cut the fence and invade the camp, or they'd lie down in front of the trucks going in and out um they were treated very badly often by the police and security services they mm. were you know they were arrested and often quite violently kind of taken into, taken into 19 years and con- to have a continuous protest uh, presence for 19 years it's it gives the kind of peace process and the peace protest movement more generally uh, it gives a really specific focus in britain there's this particular space and i think the fact that it's female dominated and it's often, I think, unfairly seen as being dominated by middle class women. It's not entirely middle class at all, but it explains why it does. It's not. It, it's used as a shorthand, but it's not really talked about. You know, it's not given the same kind of credence in in protest history as other big protest spaces or movements. You know, people people talk about the march from Jarrow, which is really important. The nineteen thirty yeah uh, six Jarrow march. Um, think so we'll double check yes the march from jarrow down to london to protest unemployment of course that's really important and that should get a lot of acknowledgement but greenham doesn't get as much and i think at least partly because it's it's seen as being a bit silly it's women sitting around singing kumbaya i think often as well when it's something that's that's women dominated in a protest movement like that it's often seen as very um separate from any kind of power structure Mm -hmm. that would um possibly change or be swayed by the protests. Yes. And I think that's quite interesting to think about. This that very often um, you get so like consumer activism mm-hmm. 
is quite often seen we're going to be talking about more about consumer activism in in the next episode but it's it's quite often seen as a very cut away from from the powers yeah absolutely because it's you know women at home with their purses deciding what they're going to be spending money on exactly but it's incredibly effective and i think greenham was kept in the news Mm -hmm. for 19 years by these various uh exploits they also they repeatedly took them to court and things as well um the you know they kept pressure up on the government there is the there's the intermediate nuclear forces treaty the inf treaty in 19 uh in the early 1990s and in 1991 to two the missiles are sent back to america you know i'm not saying that's just because of greenham but it keeps the issue in the public eye keeps pressure on the government and they also win a number they, they repeatedly take the camp to court for things like the legality of nuclear weapons which doesn't get anywhere but it's kind of a repeated court yeah protest but they win um the right to the right to access to common ground the common land they say that the they challenge repeatedly challenge the conduct of the ministry of defense's landlords of green and common and they challenge the right of uh, the ministry of defense to be landlords of that space Thanks. and they actually the reason the pro, the reason the protest lasts for 19 years is they win the right to common land oh yeah um and in 1990, it goes to the House of Lords. And the House of Lords, which, uh, you know, it's pointed out, these are not people who would be traditionally kind of sympathetic to the Green and women, but they agree that this is absolutely, the women have a right to protest there and they have a right to that land access. So they're doing kind of practical stuff as well. Yeah. Um, I think it is really important. I'd quite like someone to do a similar thing on Parliament Square. I mean, I know that mm. there has been long-standing protests on Parliament Square, but there's always been conversations about whether or not it should be banned. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like the absolute perfect place to stage a protest is surely right in front of Parliament. Well, they had the long, um, the very, because it was, you know, it has been, it's been incredibly limited politically, your ability, kind of the ability to protest in that space is very limited. Um, And the very long-standing protester who died. Brian Hall. Yeah. Um, You know, one of the reasons he was able to be there was because his protest predated the legal yeah, changes yeah. right so his his presence was kind of his presence kind of forced the legal changes yeah that has since banned or attempted to ban protests there's still protests there but they're not yeah. the sort of camp thing this is one of the things about kind of protest in in london has been increasingly shaped and limited by um the terrorism act and like prevent legislation and things so uh, British political kind of protest marches have to be registered with the police. You need to get permission to do them. You need to register your route and this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and certainly big marches, um, you know, they're very, very kind of controlled. Um, and even if you pay, you know, even if you do the right things, even if you get permission, you can often be treated very badly by the police under these under these laws. So that you know, the student fee protests were always involved, always ended up being kettled. Yeah. Um, which is the process by which police make the space of the protest smaller and smaller and smaller and refuse to make, let people leave. Mm. Um, which always, I mean, I understand that they're doing it in order to make protest uncomfortable and difficult, but it seems extremely counterproductive to force kind of angry protesters into smaller and smaller spaces and, and keep them in spaces for a long time. It's very confrontational. Yeah, exactly. They had There was a famous one... But I think that's kind of the what seems to be increasingly the aim of yes, a lot absolutely. of demonstration policing is yeah. to... To, to show who's up. in yeah absolutely to show who's in charge there was a very famous student protest in britain in 2000 and 2008 2009 about student fees where they they ended up kettling the students on westminster bridge so they were driving them from both sides on westminster bridge and obviously it's you know it's a high bridge and it's 
higher of the thing and they were keep, kept in there for hours yeah. like in, into the night um, as a show of strength you know it's student protesters protesting against fee rises but it was because there had previously been incidents where protesters student protesters had attacked the conservative party headquarters and smashed windows and things yeah. so they they're able to use that as justification yeah but yeah the right to protest in britain has been has been really curtailed yeah over the last i mean since you know i think the terrorism act the initial thing the terrorism act is maybe 2000 but over that process i think one interesting group of women who uh, still stage pretty um public albeit quite small demonstrations mm-hmm. it's sisters uncut mm-hmm. which we've spoken about before and i think the last time they they were in the news just a month ago or so for staging a protest at a premiere in leicester square yes for some film which i know i can't remember what the film I was i can't remember what it was but it was it was in response wasn't it to the to the fact that actresses were doing kind of a, a me too style thing yeah that was quite limited yeah so that was this the premiere where they were taking as their date various kind of I think so. And Sisters Uncut went and lie down on yes, the on red the carpet. Which they've done before. They protested at the suffrage, Suffragette premiere as well, which was oh, a couple yeah. of years ago. Um, which, again, they lay, they lay on the carpet, um, partly to protest um, cuts to women's services. And it was a sort of, you know, the unfortunate irony of a film about suffragettes being celebrated at the same time as protest in Britain is made harder and also women's services are being cut mm. but I think also, speci- also specifically they were very angry that the um, the stars of that film had posed in the I'd rather be a rebel than a slave t-shirt oh, yes. which yeah. has really you know unfortunately raises you know it's a really ridiculous thing to do basically in terms of the racial politics both of the suffragettes and of like kind of protest around the world today yeah it's it's a you know a really silly kind of message to buy into yeah um, although actually you know appropriately mirrors many of the suffragettes very complicated relationships to race and racial hierarchy yeah that's true um yes yeah, so sisters uncut have done things like put uh dye in the fountains in trafalgar square and things like that like quite creative protests yeah um which is a excellent yeah. <laughs> excellent idea do you have a poem for us i do have a poem on activism and protest um and it actually it follows on quite nicely because the poem i've got is um audrey lord's who said it was simple Um, which is a poem about intersectionality in protest. Um, Do we need to explain intersectionality, do you think? I I feel like like listeners of the uh, podcast probably encountered it through us before, but intersectionality is... So it's Kimberly Crenshaw um, coined this term a little while ago, and she... It's the idea that gender is not the only thing that it... that sort of oppression that women face, that your experience of the world is shaped by the intersections between various different identities that you might hold. So Mm. class and race and gender and um, gender identity as well and uh, your nationality and your educational uh, sort of educational history and all of these different things combined Mm. to give you an identity. So that feminism, which just talks about women as women and, yeah. and sort of demands unthinking sisterhood from all women mm. is is problematic for lots of reasons. And so, yeah, the Audrey Lord poem um, starts, there are so many roots to the tree of anger that sometimes the branches shatter, shatter before they bear. She says, sitting in nedics, the women rally before they march, discussing the problematic girls they hire to make them free. An almost white counterman passes a waiting brother to serve them first and the ladies neither notice nor reject the slighter pleasures of their slavery. 
And she finishes, she sits there wondering which me will survive all these liberations. It's the idea of these kind of white feminists just unthinkingly accepting their white privilege mm. whilst discussing the, the protest. I mean, I, I kind of saw someone posting it actually around the context of the women's marches and the pink pussy hats okay. as a kind of reminder yeah. Although the, although the women's marches were actually organised, had a, had a really good intersectional aim and were organised by a very diverse group of people, by a diverse group of women, you know, I, I saw people kind of sharing this poem as a reminder that we needed to think critically about yeah. the ways in which whiteness and maybe class and other things as well played into that, that protest and the way that yeah. protest was experienced and, and kind of reported. I think that's really interesting and it's really something that, I mean, academia in Britain is incredibly white. Mm -hmm. Um, And women feel quite marginalised, as it is, including white women, um, in certain areas of research, at least. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's, I think it's very important. We are two white women. It's very important to remember that we are not uh, without privilege. No, exactly. And we can't speak for many, many more people than ourselves. Yes. on that note, shall we do recommendations? What are we recommending this week? We're recommending newsletters. Oh, good. Okay, <laughs> excellent. Um, so what, what newsletter would you recommend? So my recommendation is for a newsletter I've been subscribed to for a while. It's Jean Hannah Edelstein's um, newsletter. And I don't know if we need to explain. I guess people probably get the newsletter from our podcast. but Hopefully. If you don't, you should. <laughs> absolutely you should sign up and sign up and subscribe the reason that i really like this newsletter is because i think it by it sort of it's a really good example of some of the best newsletters that i read which are by women and they are you know kind of short form writing on a variety of different prompts they're not necessarily they don't necessarily come out regularly although many of them do have like a specific publication day a week or a month or whatever yeah um and for me uh jean's newsletter is really brilliant at taking kind of personal stories and making bigger points about them so she's written a lot about health and about um uh, she's written a a bit about marriage and about pregnancy and and lots of different issues um it's it's a sort of it feels in some ways like an email from a friend Mm. uh, but it's also a story about something important and I really like the fact that this is a space that women seem to have really uh, embraced uh, most of the I don't I subscribe to maybe one or two newsletters by men but I subscribe to loads by women yeah who use it as a space to talk to an audience they know are going to be kind of receptive and interested so it's a way of escaping some of the worst spaces of internet commentary yeah um, and just telling a story and I find that really engaging so yes you should definitely subscribe to Jean Hedder, Jean Hannah Edelstein's I think it's called Thread these days, isn't it? And Is it called Thread? I think it might, and it might be on Tiny Letters still. I think it's... But we'll put a link to it in we our We will absolutely put a link to it in the footnotes, yes. Uh, my recommendation is Caroline Crampton's Podmail mm-hmm. newsletter, which is something that you have to pay for. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, it's good to pay for it. Also, Caroline was very helpful when we decided to set up um, our donations page. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> if you want to donate to us and Caroline, that would be excellent. Um, it's... A couple of times a week and it's a critical reflection on podcasts mm-hmm. so she's basically doing cultural criticism of podcasts yeah. which I think is really interesting and it's quite helpful I don't really listen to that many podcasts anymore mm-hmm. I used to um, but I've sort of fallen out of the habit a bit but it's still very interesting to mm. have someone think very seriously about the formats yes it's 
very well written, mm-hmm. very well sourced, and it's just, yeah, it's very well crafted and really worth a subscription. I think Caroline's done really important work, actually, in, in trying to push, and I think she's written about this before, trying to push the writing about podcasts from tech writing yeah. to cultural writing. Yeah. So it's not about just podcasts as an interesting tech thing um, and about kind of, you know, platforms and the ways people make them, but actually taking the content seriously. Yeah. And I think she's been really, really important. I think she's probably the, the writer who's been most influential in making people make that shift. So I think that's yeah. really good. Yeah. She also writes for the New Statesman, and where she, she has, has for lots of things. Yeah, she has a podcast for the New Statesman on pop culture as well. Mm-hmm. Which maybe have we recommended it, or maybe we will in a future episode. Who yes. knows? Um, and on that, I think we're we're done for this particular episode. Yeah. Um, as always, you can follow us on Twitter on, at TNKPod. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a website called TomorrowNeverKnowsPod.com where you will find our newsletter and our donations page. Um, you should absolutely subscribe to our newsletter because that's how you get our footnotes. That's um, true. Increasingly, my favourite part of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just all the references of everything we've been talking about. We're also on Facebook um, and we have individual Twitter accounts as well. But yes, there's there's lots of ways of getting in touch and we really love to hear from, from you listeners. So yes. do email us. Um, and on that, it's bye. Yeah, bye.